Today we wrap up our study on transformation of the heart, and we're going to look at the role that conflict can play in personal transformation. Most Christians think conflict should be avoided at all cost. That the presence of conflict means the absence of harmony or peace. That is a mistaken understanding of conflict. Conflict is not the problem. In fact, conflict is first of all normal. As long as there are human beings involved, there will be conflict. All conflict is, is a difference. That's all it is. There is no season in the American culture that accentuates the natural tendency and presence of conflict than political season. Just look at the mix of people in this room. Some are feeling the burn. Some are trumped up. Some of us are someplace in the middle. And here we are, we all love Jesus. We all wanna see the kingdom of God come. I mean, conflict is normal. There's nothing wrong with it. Sometimes I joke or I've heard other people say, you know, church would be great if it wasn't for people. (laughs) And what we mean by that is if we just didn't have conflict, church would be great. Actually, what I wanna show you is that conflict can be great. God can use conflict. In Acts chapter six, we see the first of several periods of conflict in the early church. We're just gonna read the first seven verses. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What we have in Jerusalem is a rapidly growing church. There were days when thousands of people were added to the church in Jerusalem. How'd you like to deal with that logistically? And it was a church predominantly out of two different cultural groups, both Jewish, but one Hebrew-speaking Jews, and the others were the Hellenistic Jews who spoke predominantly Greek. And like all faithful Jews, they came to Jerusalem for the holy season, and when Pentecost came, many of them stayed because that's where the church was. They were converted. And as they grew, trying to meet the needs of the different parts of the body, one group was feeling neglected. That's interesting. We're two churches coming together. In some ways, two cultures, because each church has its culture. We're growing. It's natural that issues are going to come up, and so it came up here. How do the apostles respond to it? The first thing that this conflict brings about is an opportunity to clarify who's supposed to do what. That's good. 
It was important for the apostles to say, what are our priorities, even though we care about this? And then it opens up an opportunity for more people to serve because they say, look, let's get those that are most connected to this, who have skin in the game, let's empower them to do this. So it multiplies ministry, it multiplies leadership. And in the end, because everybody was heard and a solution was made, it brought deeper unity that would not have been there if the conflict hadn't come up. It would have just been one of those things that people quietly stewed about. But instead, it says, it pleased everyone. But here is the most important result of how the early church dealt with conflict, and it's the last verse. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So first of all, conflict is normal. It's going to come up, but also conflict is necessary. It gives an opportunity for God to speak through multiple voices, for for everyone to come together and to seek God, and ultimately, for the cause of the gospel. Churches that don't know how to deal with conflict are churches that get shunted when it comes to bringing the gospel of Christ. One of the great marks of the early church, as was said by the philosophers of the Romans, behold how they love one another. They were attractive, and this is one of the ways it happened. Nobody dealt with conflict like this, but the church did, and it was redemptive. The purposes of God were expanded. Conflict is an opportunity for us all to grow together and for God to be glorified and for us to be transformed. We actually need conflict. Look at this verse from Proverbs chapter 27. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The writer of Proverbs is talking about wisdom, and he's saying conflict from a friend, even if it's rough at first, if there's true friendship in the Lord, we sharpen one another. Those kind of wounds can be trusted, so it's necessary. And then the third thing I want to say is that conflict is interesting. If we all like the same things, if we all cook the same recipes, how boring would that be? (laughs) Thank God that he actually created conflict into his good creation when he created the great diversity, including in the human race. So it's interesting. So let's not get all hung up about, oh, we have conflict. The problem is not conflict. The problem is how we respond to conflict makes it either beneficial or destructive. Proverbs again, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Verse we've come back to multiple times. We get to choose whether conflict is destructive or beneficial. Now, I want to talk about three ways that we commonly respond to conflict. This comes directly from Peacemaker Ministries. Several weeks ago, I mentioned our relational commitments that as a leadership community, we make to one another about peacemaking, spiritual discipline, and the like. And they come from 
Peacemaker Ministries. And Peacemaker Ministries suggests that the average person responds in one of three ways to conflict. The first is the peace faker. The peace faker says, oh, I'm good. No, no, really, I'm fine. But they're not. It's important that everybody sees me as able to get along with everybody, so I'm just going to pretend everything's fine. Years ago, Vitalina and I, when we were traveling full-time, ended up at a camp of Mennonites. Mennonites are pacifists. They have a high regard for being peacemakers. Well, this particular camp had a staff that when you first met them, you go, wow, this, they're, so, they're so gentle. Well, I was there for a whole week speaking for their teen camp, and during that week, different staff members began to confide in us. And under the surface, there was anything but peace. In fact, it was the most dysfunctional staff of any camp I'd ever been in. And I don't blame that on them being Mennonites. I blame that on them being peace fakers. This particular group was so caught with this idea that I just have to be okay. There was no resolution about anything. And there were all sorts of misunderstandings. And then when a neutral party comes in, because... Water's got to go someplace, right? Isn't that the principle? It's the same thing about bitterness and conflict. It's got to go someplace. Found its way to us. Peace faking is one of the most destructive things in churches today. You know how sinkholes are formed? How many of you have seen recently, there's been a lot of sinkholes across the United States. People are walking along one day, and then moments later, there's a pit 50 foot deep. But that pit was always there. It was just under the surface. It was being eroded and eaten away, and then all of a sudden the top collapsed. That's the dynamic that churches and families who are peace fakers create. They go along and everything seems to be fine, then all of a sudden, boom, because it was never okay. Because conflict has to be and needs to be honored and worked through in some proper redemptive way. The second common approach is the peace breaker. The peace breaker is the person that leads with their emotions. They reverse James 1.19. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For most of us, when we think about that, we think about the yeller, right? The screamer or the bully, the verbal bully. Or venting, the person who resorts to sarcasm. That's one form of the peace breaker, but there are passive peace breakers. The silent treatment is as much an act of anger as the yeller. Just because you sit there and be quiet doesn't mean you're not breaking the peace. Your silence is screaming. So there's the peace faker, the peace breaker, and then there is the peacemaker. And this is what God calls all of us to be. Jesus in Matthew 5, say this verse with me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, seek peace, pursue it. How do you pursue peace? Ignoring conflict is not seeking peace. It's faking peace. Seeking peace is active. It's a pursuit of resolution. And in that resolution, in that active pursuit of peace, God is honored and we are transformed. And so we're going to talk now about the rules of engagement 
in terms of being a peacemaker. And the first thing I want to talk about is what the goals are. If we are to actively engage when differences arise, if we begin to see them as not only normal but necessary, and if, if we achieve this high level of interest and go, well, this is interesting, let's talk this through, see what we can come up with. If we approach conflict that way as in some ways a gift, an opportunity, what is it we're trying to achieve? We're not trying to achieve winning the debate. If your goal in coming into a conflict is to get your predetermined solution to win the day, then I guarantee you, you will be a peace breaker. What is our goal then? Our goal, first of all, is to bring glory to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we find something that we have to resolve, our first checkup is, I'm gonna conduct myself in a way that in the end, God is glorified. That's what happened in Acts 6. God was glorified, the church grew. It furthered the mission of the church because they sought to conduct themselves in a way that glorified God. Secondly, the goal is always the gospel of peace. We need to recognize that the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. The gospel, frankly, is about conflict with God because of our sin. God in Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us that ministry of reconciliation. So as we engage in turning conflict into opportunity, we need to always do it in the context of the grace of God, the, the gospel of peace. And then third, we need to look for the good of all. It's not just my good, my goals. Ultimately, your goal in terms of this series in conflict is to see yourself transformed, but also to see someone else blessed and transformed. Because conflict is an opportunity to discover. And now what I want to do is give you a path toward conflict resolution. Seven steps. And the first thing that we are to do in pursuing peace is to affirm. Affirm our commitment to them as family or as brother and sister in Christ or as friend. We need to affirm their value to God and therefore their value to us. Establish a context of grace. The second thing we need to do is to enter into a discovery period where we really explore the nature of the conflict. What's really going on here? like those six blind men who each assumed something different about an elephant based on what they touch, if they each described their perspective and put it together, they'd have a pretty good picture of what an elephant is. In the same way, we come together and when we share our perspectives, it deepens our understanding of the situation. The next thing we should do then is reconsider. Reconsider. You see, when conflict turns into argument, none of these things happen. I see you as the enemy of my point of view. I don't affirm you. You're an obstacle. I'm not interested in discovering your point of view. I just want to prove that you're wrong. 
And I'm certainly not going to reconsider my stance because I'm arrogant enough to think that I've already got it all figured out. So I'm not going to reconsider. I'm just going to continue to argue my point of view. No, if we really want this to be transformational, these three things are critical at the front end. You need to be able to step back and go, okay, what is it now I've learned? How do I need to change my assumptions so that God can produce change in me as well. Affirm, discover, consider, which then leads to acknowledgement. How many of you would say that one of the dominant themes in your most difficult conversations is that the other person is not acknowledging your point of view and your feelings? Acknowledging what someone is saying, acknowledging the validity of that perspective, at least to the person, even if you see some misunderstanding that needs to be clarified, we ultimately need to acknowledge what we've heard. And we need to acknowledge how our mind may be adjusting based on what we've heard. All this needs to be part of a verbal process, not just a heart process. Then once we acknowledge, then we can begin to address a solution. One of the real differences between conflict resolution distinctly as opposed to other conversations is that we do need the solution. Sometimes the solution is, oh, well, I guess there really is no issue. (laughs) We realize we're actually doing okay. We just needed to confirm what's going on. And so the solution is we're good. But if there still is a situation, let's solve it. Let's figure out how it should be addressed. In the Act 6 model, it was some people saying, if we're the ones that do that, that will distract from what our primary role is. And by the way, Act 6 says a lot about your average small church, where pastors are perceived not only as those that bring the word, but also bring the birthday cake. (laughs) and bring the flowers at the hospital. The pastor or the pastors are the ones that everybody thinks should show up everywhere. And uh, that works only for so long because the congregation can only be a certain size for that to happen and pastors can only keep that pace up for so long. But also it's completely unbiblical. It's arrogant of a pastor to think he's that important to everybody. And it's wrong of the congregation to think that the pastor is the source of all that. Because the pastor does not have all of those gifts. No pastor is good at all those things. But the one thing I can tell you a pastor is meant to do is what I'm doing right now. And I would say to you that if how I'm going about doing my job and how you want me to do my job means that I'm not adequately spending time with the Lord and in his word, then I'm actually failing you by stepping into situations that other people should be released to do. That's what the apostles clarified. But then they also solutioned it by finding others who were gifted and close to the situation and could deal with it. So a solution is a critical part of how God wants to use conflict. He wants to bring about some action. And then once that solution is agreed to, let's commit to it. There's a point when we say, are we good with this? Then let's go forward together. Now, there are some people that have a real hard time with this part of it. 
they're constantly doubling back before the solution that we've agreed to has had an opportunity to really mature. If you're that kind of person where you're always stuck in the process, always rethinking, then you're actually a problem in conflict resolution because there's a point where we just have to commit. We have to see what God's done and we have to commit to it and move forward. Just what happened in Acts 6. They agreed to it and then the apostles didn't call out these men. The Hellenistic Jews called out these men and then the apostles blessed them and commissioned them and they committed to the task. And as a result of that commitment to it, all that God did in Jerusalem continued to be blessed and furthered. So committing, critical. And then the last thing that we should do if we've been able to get through all this, because this is not an easy thing for the average human being, is to celebrate. When you have actually worked through conflict in a way that sees it as God's gift, that embraces what we can all learn and the transformation that can take place, that works out a godly solution that we then can come around and commit ourselves to, let's celebrate that because it's what God intended in the first place. Let's have a party. This is good, God's been glorified. We've learned, we've grown together and we are more united than we've ever been before because of this. I love that picture. And I would say to you that this is something I would like for us as a church to come back to over and over and over again. Let me double back because there's something that came to my mind now that I wish I had spoken of when we talked about the peace faker or the peace breaker. One of the tendencies in churches that see conflict as itself something to be avoided because conflict like all natural phenomenon, water and wind, they all find a way, conflict finds a way, is backroom conversations and triangulation. When we don't seek peace and pursue it, when we're unwilling to actually engage with the people that are part of the conflict, but instead go outside, that is one of the most destructive forces to churches because all you're really doing is affirming your predetermined misconceptions about a situation and pulling others into it. Every situation that I've personally experienced or become aware of where churches experience collapse or huge conflict is because of peace fakers and peace breakers who triangulate rather than seek peace and pursue it. I've experienced personally the downfall of that and the pain that that can create. And I want to tell you, one of the reasons we're going at this right now is because we're at a critical stage in this church. We're at a critical stage in this church. The hardest transition is to move from where we are right now to the next hundred people. Because so much will change in terms of the relational dynamic. And it's going to bring up stuff in some of you. You're sitting here and you don't have a clue of how you're going to react to it. But it's going to bring up stuff because it's new for most people. Most Christians do not spend their lives in growing churches. Most Christians do not spend their lives in a church that's the size we are, let alone where we expect God to go if he continues to bless and we're reaching people in the city, which is what we believe God's called us to. This will be the hardest transition because where we are right now, you can still walk around and pretty much recognize every face, but there's gonna be a point where, and the Church of Acts, by the way, reached it like on their very first church service. 
They reach that pretty quickly. No debate, no discussion. What's going to happen is that it's going to bring about change for some of you that are used to being in churches where you know everything's going on, where if you have an opinion about something, you expect it to influence things. That's going to stop happening because 500 people can't influence every decision, can't be aware of every decision. And part of how we're structuring right now is with the idea of being able to be there because if we don't structure for that now, we'll hit a ceiling. But God wants more people to come to Christ. God wants a vibrant church in this city that is growing. And not just this church, but every church, but we're definitely gonna be part of it. We've got a whole neighborhood out here to reach for Christ. If you took a map of Worcester and put a pin at 25 Belmont Street, it's center city. God's moved us here. And he didn't move us here just to be who we are right now. He moved us here so that the gospel can go forward uninhibited. And how we deal with the conflict that's gonna be inevitable to growth will determine whether or not what we see in the book of Acts happens here. That people daily are added to the cause of Christ. That the name of God, the reputation of God is multiplied and that the city is blessed. And that's why we're spending so much time on this right now and I really do believe this has been God's doing. And I'm calling all of you into this journey of self-awareness. Embracing every situation, even the toughest ones, as an opportunity for you to learn something about yourself even as you're speaking truth and exercising whatever role you're to have in other people's lives. Because if we are not being transformed, then we are going to be poison, not life and fruit and blessing. I wanted to share with you one passage as we wrap up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is contrasting how God works for his glory and reveals his glory through his church today versus in the Old Testament. And he's using as an illustration the glory that was revealed physically by Moses after he had been in the presence of God. I want to read it for you. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, and that's the law. He's speaking about the Old Testament law. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? To pause here, because we're building up to the final statement. All right, so Paul's saying that the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Testament law was ultimately to reveal the nature of our spiritual death. It brought an awareness of our need for resurrection, our need for Christ. And he said, even that, produce glory, but it was temporary. Moses' glory began to fade 
he covered his face because he was afraid the people would know that the glory was fading. It was a temporary thing. And what he's leading up to is the idea of the glory that God brings about in you and me is so much more glorious and permanent. He goes on. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now listen to this. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The difference between the Old Testament was it made us aware of our spiritual death, and being in the presence of God brought a degree of glory, but it was a fading glory. Here's the difference. In Christ, our faces are forever unveiled, and we live and forever can see and contemplate the glory of God in the same way Moses did on Mount Sinai. We did that in worship today. We get to come boldly before the throne of grace, boldly into the Holy of Holies. We get to contemplate the glory of God with absolute freedom. And you know what the result is? We become glorious. In the same way Moses glowed because he'd been in God's presence, we reflect the glory of God. But It's a journey. It is a journey of ever-increasing glory. Moses' glory faded, ours increases. Ours is to increase our whole life. How does it do that? By God relentlessly pursuing his work of transforming us into his image. So the very thing we've been talking about, about our own personal transformation, renovation of the heart, is the lifelong journey that we're in together. And we, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God, are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. Father, that's what we wanna be as your people. That's who I wanna be as your man, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend. We want to be in this journey where you are constantly transforming us, where we don't settle for who we are, but always reach to let you do more in us. Father, we pray that what we've been through these last eight weeks would be a great foundation to inspire us to pursue that and to join you in that work of radical transformation for your glory, Father. In the days ahead for this church, May people see a group of people that are ever increasing in reflecting the glory of God. Amen.